Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Wes Martin. One word to describe him, journalist. Most of the time. Frustrated, I think, would also be (laughs) an equally adequate word. All journalists, I guess, to one extent or another, are frustrated. It is a certain amount of self-loathing, I think. You you may have heard the name before, and you definitely, if you're a listener and supporter of this station, WFHB, you've heard his voice. Wes Martin is the news director here. He does yeoman work, heroic yeoman work, I should say. Getting the daily local news out every day, wow. Well, four days a week. Well, which, hey, that's every day But to who's me. counting? Wes, I'm glad you're here. And the reason you're here is because... You're not going to be the news director for very much longer. How long are you going to be here? Uh, Until July 1st. And you're leaving. And I'm leaving. You're going to be replaced by Kyrie Greenberg, who uh, was an intern here. She is now going to be the news director. Big shoes to fill. What's your size of shoe? Uh, Twelve and a half clown. Oh, that's what I thought. Right. Hey, let me give you the lineup of news directors we've had here. What a bunch of people who were really accomplished. What a bunch of saps. Well, that too. (laughs) (laughs) The department was started off by Chad Carruthers. He was replaced by Allison Bektesh, who's big out in the mountains right now. Mm -hmm. She has been with NPR. Right. She was at uh, Aspen Public Radio for a while. Yeah. And I think she just got a new job at um, like Colorado Daily Times or something like that. A a newspaper out there that, uh, oddly enough, is uh, uh, very ambitious in what they're doing. They're not cutting, they're adding. And they did something, um, as, as far as I'm aware, this paper was kind of started by... They had a similar situation like we did with the Herald Times here, where Gatehouse Media ended up buying, uh, like the Denver Post, and ended up buying out a lot of their editors' staffs. And uh, rather than kind of take the pay cut and work for an entity that they didn't really want to work for, I think a lot of these editors ended up leaving the Denver Post and started their own nonprofit journalism mm-hmm outlet um which in that case wfhb has been ahead of the curve yeah ever ever since chad carruthers uh took one year without pay right to be the news director here and to say hey this is a thing that we can make work and it's a very real possibility that um we can have our own independent nonprofit daily news source and all of the associated programs that go with that including big talk I think WFHB has 28 news and public affairs programs, and I think 20 of those we produce in-house about every week. And all of that is nonprofit and independent. It is a community treasure, a community resource. We'll go into what it means even more as we go along. I want to find out a little bit about you. You're a journalist sometimes, as you say. Sometimes. But, you know, from what I can uh, glean from looking at your past, I've looked at your past, young man, you weren't always going to be a journalist. No. No. um, My undergrad was in 
sociology and anthropology. And then when I graduated, I realized um, there isn't really a sociology firm that seems to be hiring sociologists, <laughs> yeah. you know, like crazy. I felt a, a calling at some point to some kind of public service or public engagement. And so I started working at a mental health facility here huh. in town, immediately out of undergrad, uh, called Meadows. And didn't particularly like that and started to get bummed out by that whole industry. Huh. Um, and so uh, my father, actually, and I'm from here, I'm from Bloomington. My dad could see that I wasn't uh, particularly getting engaged with what I was doing uh, anymore at a mental health facility and said, why don't you volunteer at WFHB? Because that place, they're always saying that they need volunteers and you've got time on your hands. Why not? Wow. Um, so I walked through the doors during a new volunteer orientation on the first Wednesday of the month at 630. We still do it. Into the lobby. And I said, hi, I'm Wes. I don't know what I'm doing here, but I like the news. I like reading the news. And Allison Bektesh was the news director at the time. And she immediately said, sit here and we're going to go through this and start writing this out. Um, and it was I was like that. I was addicted. WFHB has been the place where careers have started galore. I know. It's the impetus for a lot of people. It's the, the what gets them going into the media industry. I think Alison Bektesh also got a master's of journalism, I think, here at IU, and then got a job before she was a great big, big wig, NPR, big shot out in Colorado. <laughs> Um, she was working as the news director at WFHB for three years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's a testament to a community radio station that you have an influence and launch a lot of people's careers. Well, when I started out here in uh, late 2009, believe it or not, uh, Chad was still the news director and I was thrown right into the fire and I had some good people training me too. And there were some real hot news reporters here. And I immediately sensed, Wes, that this was as good as any class you could possibly take in a journalism school. This was hands-on stuff. A, it's a lot better than a lot of classes that yeah. you can take, honestly, because um, it's one of the only places that an intern can walk in off of the street, sit down in front of a piece of paper and call up the sheriff or call up a state senator or call up a state rep and say, hey, I'm a reporter uh, with WFHB and I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about this, this, and this, uh, and start actually producing news, um, which is the hardest part about the news. Citizen journalism. It exists here. Are you aware of it existing anywhere else? I know that there are a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of really good work. But uh, I think just because of the nature of the industry and the country that we live in, uh, a lot of that work has previously been for profit. Yeah. And I think there's a bigger movement, I think, as we hinted on earlier, towards a nonprofit independent model. And I think more and more WFHB is kind of, I, I, I would say, leading the way on that. But I will say that WFHB has been here the whole time. And I think now that there's there's kind of a push back towards nonprofit independent media, that looks good on us. We have been doing this for years and years and years. There is talk now of getting up some kind of independent 
nonprofit media group. There's a lot of people who don't have jobs anymore because of what's going on in various places. And people maybe are coalescing to make something big like that. I wonder if WFHB would somehow be a part of that. Could it be possible? I think it could be possible. But, you know, we do two things really well, which is radio and, well, we've been trying to keep our internet presence online and relevant enough. Um, so I think if there was any coalition of the willing to borrow a phrase, I think WFHB could be a part of that. But I also think that um, it's hard enough doing what it is that we do, let alone working with other uh -huh. partners. Uh-huh. It is hard doing what we do. We have about uh, something on the order of 200 people who volunteer for the station. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. And then, But there's a tiny crew of paid staffers, of which you're one, mm -hmm. who, who, without you guys, this doesn't go. Well, that's, yeah, you maintain a skeleton crew and the community fills in the flesh and muscles of the entire operation. Mm -hmm. So the thought is that we're there to guide and give something to latch on to, and the rest of it is up to the community, which to me uh, is kind of a great point. Anytime somebody calls in and says that they don't like that they're hearing, well, come down here and report on what you want to hear. Jump in. Get get off your duff and come down here, and we, we can talk about what you want to talk about. Um, and that's kind of the glory of community radio, is that if you don't like what you're hearing, it's your radio station. You built it. You know, I've been uh, uh, doing delving into people's lives for decades. I have been a freelance writer since 1983, and I realized uh, my strength is getting people to draw them out. And that's what gave me the idea for Big Talk. And uh, you know, Wes, you were the guy who stood behind me when I said I'd like this thing to be a standalone show. You were all over it. You said, let's make it happen. I did. And I think the only penitence that you've had to pay for it is that every Monday, I said, you have to give me eight minutes of what you did so that we can use it for the daily local news. Right. And that's the fun part of it, because we get to learn about who interesting people are on this show. It's fun. And we get to learn who Wes Martin is, for gosh sakes. He's been the voice behind the news here for two years now. And you really get engaged with your community through shows like these, I feel. I agree. We've been talking about this nonprofit versus profit model. I'm of the uh, age where I recall when the major news organizations like the television networks and so forth, they didn't see news as a profit center. In fact, it was a loss center, but they did it for integrity. They did it for public service, but that's not the case anymore. But we have it right here, nonprofit. We're not looking to make a billion dollars here. You haven't, have you, Wes? No, not quite. Not quite? Just a little not, You're getting there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe by July 1st, you'll hit that, that magic 10-figure mark. Doesn't seem like it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, fingers crossed. Uh, maybe Bill Gates and Bill and Melinda will just, you know, chip in a little bit to 
supporting independent community radio. Although we've we've been saying that I think for what what are we on twenty six years now? Yeah. So yeah. we'll 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 see. But um, yeah, no the the for profit uh, business model of news uh, it has largely historically been advertising driven right which means that you yeah. have to have and produce content that is consistently engaging with your demographic audience and also part of the reason why the five o'clock news became so important and why the evening news became so important because it's easily digestible media that advertisers can stick next to uh-huh. um, and after the late 90s um, with the advent of the internet um, we've started to see that business model switch over consistently mm-hmm. and to the point where um, the kind of print advertising-based economy uh, has kind of dr- dropped out, where people are less dependent on the classifieds that you circle with a red pen as much as they are the classifieds that you click through until you find a job that interests or su- suits you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the problem is that the media industry itself has struggled to keep up with that, in my estimation. Um, and also, this is, you know, somebody who's purely speculative and looking outward towards the the media market. But to me, it's led to a rise and it's led to an increase in the importance of where do you get your news from, let yeah. alone who is telling you. Right. The news. Um, and so if you think about the number of media companies in the United States, there's like seven companies, seven media companies. Seven elephants in this room. That own like 90% of all terrestrial uh, broadcast in the United States. So that mm-hmm. includes television, all radio, um, but it's owned by a handful of companies. And uh, to me, that's part of what makes WFHB such a special place, is that this was started by a bunch of hippies in, <laughs> you know, back in the day who uh, yep. had a vision and somehow got uh, Herman B. Wells to sign off on it, you know, and uh, back this and fought the FCC for, you know, a licensing yep. in the area and isn't affiliated with. NPR or PBS or any other kind of um, major company um, or major entity, but um, is just a voice of the people. Vox Populi. Right. You know, that's to me, that's WFHB. A real gonzo operation. I should say Herman B. Wells, for anybody who doesn't know, and I don't know why they wouldn't, was the beloved longtime uh, president of Indiana University. So, Thanks to him. Thanks to so many people who got this thing off the ground. But then you came aboard, and as you indicated, your father uh, gave you a kick in the butt, mm-hmm. and he said, "Go, go, volunteer, or do something, young Figure man. Figure it out. Yeah. Get off of that couch. Figure it out." <laughs> but you've been figuring out for a long while. You have quite a fascinating resume. Thank you. I've got to say that. Now let's go all the way back. You have been involved in projects all around the world. Let me just go over some of the places in this world that you've lived in. All right. Amman, Jordan. Yes. Ramallah in the West Bank. Guilty. Uh, Durban, South Africa. You had to tell me how to pronounce this town name, Soufrère, St. Lucia. Soufrère, yeah. 
Austin, Texas, of course. You went to the University of Texas. That's I where you... I believe it's pronounced Austin. Austin. Austin, Te- Austin. Tejas. Oh, but, or if it were in France, Austin. Right. Bloomington, Indiana as well. You've been around, but some of the wonderful things you've done, you you partnered in or cooperated with the startup people for a nonprofit in Nairobi, Kenya called EcoSmart. What was that all about? So that was uh, a project that was led by a Harvard Business School graduate um, who wanted to do carbon offsetting and carbon crediting. Uh Um, And so we would, essentially there's, it's trying to defeat two birds with one stone. One, there's a lot of open indoor fires in Kenya and particularly in East Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa in general. Um, And that leads to a huge amount of health problems, uh, particularly for a area of the world that is already susceptible to respiratory diseases like TB, you know, just even an influenza virus itself can become uh, dangerous. And by indoor fires, you're talking about for heating and cooking? Particularly for cooking, but also, yeah, for heating uh, in the winter. And also you you think about if you don't have electricity, fire is your source of light as well, right? Um, And so in order to mitigate these indoor fires, um, we were selling what were called rocket stoves. So essentially where um, you ever like walk down the beeline and you see that giant smokestack, Mm -hmm. right? And part of the reason that giant smokestack is so tall is so that you get a larger draft going through it. And so the same idea applies to a rocket stove, essentially, where uh, you increase the height of a stove. So this thing would be like half the size of an oil drum Mm -hmm. um, and it would burn charcoal, it could burn wood, it could burn whatever your fuel source is. So the idea was it would create fewer fumes by inside uh, the house, inside yeah. of the house, um, and also be safer than you know, like an open pit fire. Yeah, um, particularly if you have children and stuff running around, there's less of a chance of them stepping into something or falling over and burning themselves. So the idea of EcoSmart was to give these stoves away, essentially towards uh, communities in East Africa, particularly around Nairobi and then um, throughout villages uh, further and further away from the capital. Um, And then finance that by using carbon offsets. So an open pit fire produces a certain amount of particulate matter a year on average annually, right? Um, And a rocket stove produces significantly fewer particulate matter. So that is considered an offset. Yeah. Anytime you can do away with something that is horrendously polluting and replace it with something that's more efficient, that's an offset. And so by encouraging this offsetting, we could then sell those carbon credits back towards the European market, particularly towards producers of factories in like Germany or in Rhine-Westphalia, all of these different factories and industrial areas throughout uh, the European Union, which operate on a carbon economy. Hmm. Now, we have had some attempts at carbon offsets here in Bloomington, Joe Davis being one person who had the idea to give that a shot. And is that a, a wave of the future? I, I don't know if it's a wave of the future in the United States. Um, I, I certainly think folks are going to have to get pretty real about global warming and about <laughs> climate change uh, in general. And I think uh, it's it's one of those things that you don't want to pay attention to until it 
knocks on your doorstep and says, here I am. We react to crises. Right. And, and, and the, the current business model that we have, if you can convince people, hey, you can make money off of this, mm-hmm. I think you have a way better shot of getting something like a carbon credit tax uh, implemented yeah. in the United States. Although one of the things, I, I mean, I had never heard of a carbon credit tax uh, in mainstream politics before, uh, but Pete Buttigieg was here on Tuesday yep, and literally said... One of the things that we have to do is introduce a carbon credit tax. Yeah, um, and that I, I I don't know that might be that's one of the first one of the first times that I've heard that economy introduced in mainstream presidential politics. Yeah. I think Al Gore may have talked about it previously. Now you were with an outfit called USAID. You were an editor. You served in Ramallah there. What was that all about? Well, I uh, ended up in Ramallah, but I started serving USAID when I was in Amman, Jordan. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was an undergrad doing a study abroad in Amman, and which uh, I went to Earlham College. So yes. th- this is dialing it all the way back, and I apologize for the length and breadth that I'm going to. Earlham in Richmond, Indiana. In Richmond, Indiana. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, it has a, one of the largest and one of the highest per capita uh, Palestinian populations in the United States uh, at Earlham and of any undergraduate institution and uh, has a huge amount of um, refugees. And part of that is because it's a Quaker school. And Mm -hmm. the Quakers uh, have decided anywhere where people are fleeing from or don't want to live, we're going to start a school. And um, so there's a Quaker school in the West Bank um, which was very popular for Palestinian and Palestinian families. And so when I went to Earlham, because I absolutely loved that, and I love that like 30% of their population was from out of the country, I started running into a number of Palestinian people and talking with them about their life experiences uh, and decided to study abroad in Amman, Jordan, and ended up doing a research project about uh Palestinian refugee camps and the United Nations Relief Works Agency and got an office at the UN offices in uh, Amman, Jordan, hmm. and started teaching English for care uh, to Somali refugees who yep. were living in Jordan at the time. Yep. And just um, really got interested in kind of aid work and uh, the development community and uh, ended up working for um, Al-Nasher, which was a advertising and PR firm that was being contracted by USAID at the time. USAID being? The United States Agency for International Development. Yep. Um, and USAID, um, so as a federal uh, institution that receives uh, grant funding via Congress uh, and then allocates that grant funding through a series of channels, primarily through working with area companies that are already existent uh, on the ground. Um, and so I found Al Nasher w- through working for USAID and started working uh, with them in order to implement and promote USAID development projects. And I liked that, but I didn't really like Amman all that much. Huh. And had a number of friends, as I said, from Earlham College who were living in Ramallah in the West Bank and requested a transfer to Al Nasher's offices in the West Bank. And so started uh, living in Ramallah that summer and uh, working for USAID uh, throughout that time before I had to go back to school. 
Here in the United States, we have a view of uh, the West Bank uh, having to live there as something akin to uh, being in hell. Uh it, it's funny because a number of Israelis also have that same sentiment. It's close. It is close. Yeah. And um, but it also might as well be the moon. Yeah. Uh, as far as you're concerned, um, I my I was living at my friend's house in East Jerusalem uh, when I first moved to the West Bank, and to get back and forth from work took three hours. Wow. Um, because you have to go through checkpoints. So yeah. even though East Jerusalem is a part of Palestine, yeah. Uh, you still have to go through Israel to get to the rest of the West Bank. Right. So we would go through Kalandia checkpoint, which is one of the largest checkpoints. I think the largest checkpoint by volume and foot traffic in the occupied territories. And that was just every day. Mm -hmm. And it's like walking through uh, essentially a warehouse made up of TSA. Yeah. And you're kind of walking. You you have a thousand yards and you're at every five seconds, you're getting pulled aside or wanded or going through some metal detectors or walking by, um, you know, an 18 year old with an M16 strapped to him, um, which is disconcerting uh, mm -hmm. to say the least. So eventually I ended up just moving to Ramallah and saying, forget this, I'll visit East Jerusalem rather than having to go through Kalandia every day. Um, but it, really gets you an idea for how frustrating that must be. I mean, imagine going through TSA every morning yeah. uh, to and from work. There's nothing quite like ending a busy day and then having to go through a checkpoint. But then the West Bank is just a place where people live. People are there. People are there. You know, it's like Baghdad. You don't necessarily want to live there, but people do. Yeah. And yeah. people are, th that's somebody's reality every day. and Carrying I, on with their lives. Exactly. You've seen a lot. Hey, for a while, you were the news editor of the Phuket Gazette. The Phuket Gazette being in Thailand. A newspaper in southern Thailand. Uh -huh. So Phuket is the second smallest profit, uh, province excuse me, in Thailand. So I was the editor of a newspaper there for uh, nine months yeah. and then left shortly before that paper folded. Did you know how to speak Thai beforehand? No, no. And I, wow. I, I, I still don't. I, I know restaurant Thai. What language was this newspaper in? In English. Aha. Well, that so helps. had Thai English reporters. So they would write an article in English from yeah. Thai sources. Yeah. And then I would clean that up and put it on paper. And this was an English Daily Weekly. Was there a free press in Thailand? Absolutely not. In Thailand, they have a number of uh, laws pertaining particularly towards the press, but uh, something called less majesté laws. Uh -huh. You cannot say anything that even could be construed as disparaging of the monarchy. Yeah, so, yeah. And that extends as far as one of the things that we had to look out for, particularly as editors, is that no picture can be above the king's image at the time when we were there. La, la, la. We've run out of time, so join us Monday for Big Talk Extra during the 5 p.m. Daily Local News for more of this conversation. The news director of WFHB is Wes Martin. I'm sad to say that you're leaving July 1st, this radio station. I'll miss you, Wes. I'll miss you too, Mike. Thank you for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike.